Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 44th program in this series. In this program, I am in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and I will be continuing in verse 17. This has to do with the man who was healed, who was born blind. He was healed of his blindness. And in the previous program, I was explaining the significance of the path that the man would have quite likely taken to go from the Pool of Siloam or the region of the Pool of Siloam up to the temple, that this was the same path that the priests would use from the temple to go down to the Pool of Siloam every day of the Feast of Tabernacles in order to collect some water and then go back up to the temple and pour out the water before the base of the altar, that the man who was born blind is now going to take this same path on the day after the last day that the priests would have made this great procession. And so the people would still be there in their tabernacles because it was a Sabbath day. The last day of the feast was a Sabbath day. This day, which is the day afterwards, is also considered to be a Sabbath day according to the historical record. And so the people would not have dismantled their tabernacles. They would not have left their dwelling place there in Jerusalem, they would have been there to see the procession of people who would be bringing the man who was born blind but healed. The people in Jerusalem there for the Feast of Tabernacles would witness this man and this procession going up to the temple. When they arrived at the temple, the Pharisees there were confronted with the fact that a miracle took place, and according to their beliefs, only the Messiah could have performed this healing. Only the divine presence of God could have done this healing because it was considered to be a divine judgment of God. The divine judgment that the man was born blind because he was apparently committing sin before he was born. That was the belief of the people, and I explained this in the previous programs. And that because it was a divine judgment, only the divine could set him free. Therefore, the representative of the divine, being the Messiah himself, was the only one who could do this. This was right after they chased Jesus out of the temple, because Jesus claimed to be God, manifested in the flesh. By definition, he was therefore the Savior of Israel, the Messiah. He was the one. They had just chased him out, and then he went and he healed a man that only the Messiah could have healed. The man is now going into the temple as a testimony to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the priests, to everyone, that Jesus is the Messiah. This was a busy day. 
And so they questioned him. And that's where I was in verse 17 at the end of the previous program. In verse 17, they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? So they asked the man to give his opinion or to give his belief to tell them what he thinks about Jesus. If he tells them that Jesus is the Messiah, then he will be kicked out of the synagogue. He will effectively be rejected by the entire nation. Notification will be presented to the people that this man is to be removed from the synagogue. He's no longer allowed to be a part of the community. He might as well just leave the country and build a new life somewhere else in some other foreign land. That was the significance of being kicked out of the synagogue. It was a big deal. And this man had been rejected his entire life. His entire life was all about being told that he was blind because he sinned in his mother's womb. And he was a dangerous person that God needed to protect everybody from. And so this was the protection that he would be born blind so that he could be a part of the society. But everyone will see, know and understand that he is a very serious sinner. So he has experienced rejection from people his entire life. Here is an opportunity for him to be accepted. He can be accepted because God has given his approval of the man now by stating through the miracle that this man is no longer to be considered a sinful, wicked, and evil person as they considered him before. He has now been given a new stature a new recognition, and here's his chance to be accepted by the people in the nation, especially those who had the greatest influence in the nation, those who were in charge at the temple, and the religious leaders of the Pharisees. So they ask him the question, and instead of stating that Jesus is the Messiah, he said, he is a prophet. He plays it safe, which is reasonable. What he said is true. Jesus is a prophet. But what is more important to understand about his answer is that he effectively moves responsibility from himself to Jesus. When the Pharisees asked him what he would have to say about Jesus, then he would be responsible for his answer. But in this case, he gives an answer, and Jesus will be responsible for this answer. Because there are rules, there are laws related to prophets. And so if the man identifies Jesus as a prophet, then Jesus is going to have to assume full responsibility for being recognized as a prophet. Now, we know that he was the fulfillment of what was described in Deuteronomy chapter 18 with regards to a prophet. But at the end of chapter 18, there are some additional verses that describe the importance, the significance, and the seriousness, and the risks associated with being a prophet. I'll begin in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where it says, The Lord your God 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And this is written in the context of Moses, that it will be a prophet that God will raise up just like Moses. In verse 16, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in my name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so if Jesus is going to be identified as the fulfillment of what is given here in Deuteronomy chapter 15, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 15, then there is also the responsibility associated with this that Jesus is going to be held accountable for what he says. And so the burden is moved from the man who was healed to Jesus. That's what the man did by answering the question in the way that he answered it. And so the Pharisees, or the religious leaders there in the temple, are not going to be able to remove this man from the synagogue, from the congregation. They're not going to be able to reject him because of the answer that he gave. They cannot just look at this situation this circumstance that is causing a disturbance in their lives, that is making them feel uncomfortable, that they have to render some kind of a judgment of recognition or denial of what has happened, and they are looking for someone to blame. They're looking for someone who they can place blame on. They're looking for someone who can be seen as the evil person who has stirred up all of this that they are experiencing in this situation. They just want someone that they can call evil so that they can remove themselves from the situation and say, yes, there was a situation and there was a resolution. Someone was condemned over this situation. They just need to find someone to condemn, or at least that's their perception. That's their belief. If they can just find someone to blame, someone to take responsibility, someone who they can condemn, then they can leave this issue, they can get on with their lives and forget about it, and if anybody ever confronts them over the idea that someone was born blind and yet they were healed and it was Jesus, they would have an answer. They 
would have a way to escape the concern or the topic entirely. So this didn't work. In verse 17, they asked him, what do you say? He said he's a prophet. Well, there's nothing that they can do with that. So in verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. So, if that doesn't work, if questioning the man to see if the man will say that Jesus is the Messiah and then they can condemn the man over that, that didn't work, all right, well then let's just deny. Let's deny the fact that the man was born blind to begin with. That's how we'll solve it. We'll solve it through the denial of reality. That's what that's what we're going to try next. So they tried that, and in verse 19, and they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Okay, so they asked the parents two different questions. They asked the parents, Is this your son, who was born blind? That's the first question. And the second question is, What happened? Why is it that he is now able to see? Now, they are able to respond to the first question just fine. But how they respond to the second question is a serious matter because they are being set up in a similar way that their son was just set up with a question like this. If they say that it was Jesus who healed their son and that Jesus is by default the Messiah, well, now the religious leaders have somebody to blame. They can say that all of this is the fault of the parents and their false testimony, their false beliefs in Jesus. So in verse 20, his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. That's the first question that they answer. They can answer that question, There will be no consequences for them if they answer that question. Verse 21, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. In other words, they are not going to be responsible for what is going on. They are not going to be responsible for what happened, and they're not going to be responsible for this conflict that is taking place in the temple. They are going to just simply say, we know nothing. We know nothing. We are not able to bear witness. We are not able to testify about this matter. All we can say is that this is our son, and we can say that he is of age. In other words, we are not responsible For what happens to him? Whatever has happened to him, it is not our responsibility. It is his responsibility. So you need to deal with him. He will speak for himself. We will have no part of this at all. And in verse 22, we have a more clear explanation of this. In verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, 
he would be put out of the synagogue. As I explained earlier, this was the risk that the man was facing when he was asked this question. In verse 23, therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. It was a way of saying, we are not going to be responsible for what is going on here. Verse 24, so they again, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, there are two ways to look at this. The first way that we could look at this is to say, well, the Pharisees were just simply saying we need to give glory to God and pretend that Jesus does not exist. Because if we are to consider Jesus at all, we know that he is a sinner. Whatever has happened, it definitely has nothing to do with Jesus. Because if it did, well, he's a sinner and it's just too complicated. This is just not possible. So do not give glory to Jesus. Do not say that Jesus did anything that would contribute to your healing. Instead, just speak about God. God in heaven, the living God, the heavenly Father, not Jesus, who is God manifested in the flesh to live as a man and dwell among the people and be the Messiah. Not that person. So give glory to God, for we know that this man is a sinner. The second way to look at this is abstractly by saying, we should give glory to God because this sinner participated in the healing of the man who was born blind. Give glory to God because we have a sinner in our midst. He is a sinner because he has violated the Sabbath law. He violated the Sabbath law in this healing that he performed so that you can see. So we should give glory to God because he violated the Sabbath law. That's the second way that this can be perceived. Either way, this doesn't make any sense because this is not what happened. In verse 25, he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. In other words, the man is not going to be responsible for Jesus' sin or the absence of any sin. He's not going to be a witness concerning Jesus and whether he is a sinner or not. He is not going to have any responsibility with regards to any judgment that may be passed against Jesus, he will have no part of any of that at all. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. So he tells them, I was blind, now I can see. This is something that I know. Now, in his answer, he is insulting the Pharisees. He is insulting the religious leaders. They just told him that Jesus is a sinner. They just explained that to him. They just declared that to him. He should respond acknowledging that they are correct, that they are right, that they have spoken the truth. But that's not what he does. He says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. Well, they just told him that 
that Jesus is a sinner. So for him to say, I don't know, I don't know about that. I'm, you know, I really don't know anything about that. And just because you say it doesn't make it true. And he has every right to respond in that way because he was told his whole life that the only way that he would ever be able to see again is if the divine presence of God would manifest as the Messiah and the Messiah would set him free from his blindness and heal him of his blindness so that he could see. That's what they told him. They told him this his entire life. And it is obvious, it is abundantly obvious that they are denying that belief that they proclaimed. They said that. They taught that. They believed that. And they told him to believe that. So now it's happened. Now it's happened and they will not accept what they told him. They will not embrace the evidence. They will not embrace the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what could they say that he could believe? This was a very important matter to him. He's the one who was blind. He's the one who can see now. This is important to him. And so all he can say to them now is, whatever you say to me, I have to consider that maybe what you say to me isn't true. And so he responds by saying, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. And just because you say so doesn't make it true. Just because you said he is a sinner doesn't mean that he is a sinner. Not according to the man who was healed. He's not going to acknowledge that. And so he speaks to them in this way, with an aggressive response. And through this criticism of them, criticism of them as religious leaders, he criticizes and challenges their integrity. They respond. And in verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? That's their response to him telling them, you know, I'm not so sure that you're telling me the truth anymore. They asked him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He tells them, why Why are you asking me this? I already told you, and it's obvious that you rejected what I said. I don't have anything different to say. You want me to say it again? You're going to just reject it again. Or... Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to acknowledge perhaps your sin? And are you willing to recognize that he is the Messiah? Do you want to become one of his disciples? Do you want to hear the truth of Jesus and become one of his disciples? Is that why you are asking me this question? Or are you asking me this question because you're trying to find a way 
to make me responsible for what he did. You're trying to find a way to shift blame onto somebody, anybody, in order to get a resolution to this issue that you just don't like. That's what they were doing. And he responds to them in this way with this challenge. He challenges them. Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him in verse 28. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. How is this guy his disciple? He didn't even know what Jesus looked like. He didn't know where he was. He probably didn't know anything about what Jesus taught or what he believed or anything. He did not even ask Jesus to heal him. He didn't ask for this. He didn't have some great faith in Jesus and Jesus healed him. It was nothing like that at all. He was just sitting there. He was doing his thing. He was having a regular day. And next thing he knows, there's some guy who spit on some dirt and is smeared it into his eyes and tells him to go find the pool and wash his face. That's all he knows. And they say, you, you are his disciple. Where do they get that from? Why are they putting him in this position? And they say, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. They don't even know where he is from? I have to continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 44th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in John chapter 9, verses 17 through 29, where I explained the conversation that was taking place between the man who was born blind, but he was healed by Jesus, and the Pharisees, who were religious leaders there in the temple. The conversation that they were having was a conversation of the Pharisees trying to find a way to establish blame on somebody else for this conflict, for this situation. So regardless of whether Jesus healed the man or not, they could say that somebody believed something that wasn't true, and so they resolved the uncomfortable situation by expelling someone. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net